Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Cancer by the Union for International Cancer Control, an organization that unites and supports the cancer community to reduce the global burden. I'm Eric Grant, Communications and Media Manager at UICC. I'll be taking over today from my usual host, Carrie Adams, while he is out of the office. We are living in a time of awe-inspiring advancements in cancer prevention, diagnosis, and treatment. And yet, half the world's population lacks access to essential health services, and many are denied basic cancer care. What are some of the causes of this inequity, both in high- and lower-middle-income countries? How are we to overcome these barriers? And what role can innovation and technology play? Cervical cancer is one example of this inequity. Despite being one of the most highly preventable and curable forms of cancer, it remains the leading cause of cancer deaths in women in over 40 countries, with over 340,000 women dying of this disease in 2020. 90% of all new cases and these deaths occur in low- and middle-income countries. With us to discuss this is Dr. Chemtai Mungo, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the United States. Dr. Mungo, thank you so much for being with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Can you speak to me about some of the inequities you see between high and low income countries? You've worked both in Kenya and now in the United States. So I was born and raised in Kenya and growing up, you see a lot of unnecessary death and suffering. And as a gynecologist practicing in the U.S. and spending a lot of time in sub-Saharan Africa, there's significant amount of inequity um, as far as where a woman lives, determining whether or not she'll live or die. Access to vaccination, access to screening, access to early treatment. There's so many diseases, not just cancer, but others, where women who live in low- and middle-income countries just don't have access to preventative care. And for treatment, it's often too late by the time they get them. So generally speaking, as a community, we really have to work on ensuring that health systems are strong, regardless of where women live. Yes, you mentioned vaccines. This is part of the prevention strategy that was laid out by WHO, the World Health Organization, in its global strategy to eliminate cervical cancer. Could you perhaps tell us more about this global strategy and the role played by HPV vaccination? This is an exciting moment in history where we have a chance to eliminate this preventable disease. And the WHO sent, set a glo- global targets with a goal of eliminating cervical cancer by 2030. These targets are called the 90-70-90 targets, where by 2030, we need all countries in the world to have vaccinated 90% of girls against HPV by the age of 15. We need 70% of women in all these countries to have screening for cervical cancer. And we aim to get 90% of all who have been found to have precancer or cancer to get access to treatment. If we meet these 90, 70, 90 targets, then we are on target to eliminate cervical cancer by 2030. So cervical cancer gives us a really unique opportunity to, to work towards equity, where this is the first cancer that we can actually you know, eliminate. And the elimination target is the idea that you would get to less than four cases per 100,000, which in comparison currently in Malawi, which has the highest rates of cervical cancer, about 75 cases per 100,000. So we have a lot of work to do. How can that be implemented in low-income countries in, in a resource-efficient way? And perhaps there's some examples of where that is being done effectively? So vaccination is one area where there's significant inequity. 
human papilloma virus causes cervical cancer. So when you vaccinate a young girl before she's 15 years old against HPV, you basically eliminate the possibility that she will contract HPV and hence get cervical cancer. But you see a huge disparity in where girls have been vaccinated. For example, in the United States, at least 75% of girls have gotten at least one dose of the vaccine. This is compared to less than 5% of girls in low and middle income countries. That um, just lays out the depth of the inequality. There's a lot of things that can be done, are being done to kind of bridge this gap of access to primary prevention, which is what vaccination is. For example, cost reduction programs. You know, we cannot ex expect a low-income country to pay $150 per vaccine for a girl, which is the cost um, of the vaccine in the United States or in high-income countries. So we really have to have preferential pricing that um, is not aimed at profit maximization, but really at access. That is one way that we can really increase access to vaccination by making them affordable. Obviously, cost goes up with the number of required doses. I understand that while an effective prevention strategy required three doses, there's some studies going on around reducing the number of required doses. Could you tell us more about that? There's a lot of work going on, recent really exciting research around what is the minimum number of vaccines needed to give a girl protection. Initially, the data suggested that girls needed three vaccines, so three doses of the vaccine. But really recent work coming from researchers around the world, including Kenya, have shown that just one dose can give excellent protection. Now, our goal is how can we get every girl all over the world at least one dose of that HPV vaccine? Because that's how we can eliminate this very preventable cancer. So uh, that's the first pillar of vaccination. What about the second pillar, uh, screening? What are some of the means to improve or increase the pickup of screening in low-income settings? Screening is one area where we have really robust research, and a lot of people who I greatly admire have done work to change the paradigm of screening and to make it what we call resource-appropriate. So traditionally, screening for cervical cancer required something called a pap smear, which many people have probably heard about, but it was very resource intensive, where a woman needed a pelvic exam, collection of the pap smear, a pathologist to read the pap smear, and then the woman would come back and get the result and get treated. So this needed about three to four visits, which is just not feasible for women who live in rural areas who don't have a pathologist you know, within their district or even within a hundred mile vicinity. So we now have very exciting work building on very robust research that shows that women can self-collect a sample for, H, for HPV screening or cervical cancer screening. This is huge because if a woman does not need a pelvic exam and can self-collect a sample in the privacy of their own home, you know, in a market, in a community campaign, you really increase reach of screening and you take it away from health centers or hospitals or clinics, which are just too far between and then move them into community campaigns, which is very innovative work that's being done in lower social settings to reduce that multi-step need to get to a diagnosis. And really the WHO endorsed paradigm now is what we call screen and treat, where we pair screening and treatment in the same day to maximize uptake. You mentioned self-testing and I, 
as I understand it, that can help overcome the, another barrier, which is stigma or discrimination surrounding a cancer that affects the sexual reproductive organs. And I know that some women are reluctant to go into care centers or perhaps sometimes are not even allowed in certain cultures where men make decisions, medical decisions for them. So self-testing enables them to, to check in the privacy of their own homes. Could you perhaps tell us more about the, the barriers that stigma and discrimination uh, constitute for accessing cancer services? Stigma is a, is a big, big challenge um, in trying to tackle this very preventable disease. HPV and cervical cancer screening or a diagnosis has a negative connotation, somehow related to sex or promiscuity, but we know that that is not true. And we know that from a scientific perspective, anybody who has been sexually active has likely been exposed to HPV. So there's a lot of work um, that we need to do and that's ongoing to break this norms of shame or fear um, around screening and around a diagnosis of HPV. And there's multiple ways to do that. Using survivors, for example, a woman who has had screening and treatment and is healthy is a really excellent advocacy tool to tell the women not to be afraid. Changing these norms of fear around sexuality. Um, I grew up in a conservative society and sort of anything below the waist you didn't talk about, uh, that's changing. We have really robust social media campaigns currently happening around cervical health and let's talk about your cervix. So we can both utilize women who've gone through the process and come out healthy and active to be agents of change while also ensure that the messages we're passing across are not negative messages that any woman can have HPV. It has nothing to do with your sexuality. Yes, it's really interesting because it touches upon the fact that even though sometimes services are available, there may be other factors which prevents people from accessing them. And these may not require huge technological innovations to overcome. Can you perhaps tell us some of the non technological um, innovations in terms of programs or services that are being set up to facilitate people's access to care when it exists? This is a really exciting field as far as innovation, both technology and non-technology related. So from a non-technology perspective, the use of community health workers for women or men who live in the community, who know the women, girls, children, the families within their catchment area, they're a great tool to get messages of screening and prevention. So rather than waiting for families or for women to come to clinics that are far off from where they live, having an army of community health workers who are very educated, very aware of the need for cervical cancer screening, who can take the self-sampling kits to the community, return them, and then take results back to women. That is a great innovation that really removes or decenters the hospital, the clinic as a point of service provision. And what are some of the technological advances that can support this, some of this community work, particularly in low-income settings? You know, we often think of technology as restricted to high income, and the whole point is to see these advances reduce rather than increase inequities. So, for example, I'm a gynecologist, you know, in San Francisco or in North Carolina. I see women, I screen them for cervical cancer, but... Women in sub-Saharan Africa, the average woman does not have access to a gynecologist. So what we're doing, and a lot of groups are doing this, is using a cell phone, which most people now around the world have access to a cell phone. They're cheap. They have good cameras. The internet is increasingly accessible and affordable. So we are using telehealth where a nurse in a rural community 
can take a picture of what she thinks is an abnormal lesion of the cervix and transmit it to a, a specialist who is in the city or some far-flung place who can offer her guidance in treatment. It's actively being done in Tanzania, in Zambia, to bridge this gap of access to specialists. And you can be able to get women to get care in their communities rather than sending them far off. You touch upon something there, which is also not just the technology itself, but the ability to use it, to interpret it, and to move ahead with treatment or other services based on that. Sometimes it's not just a question of making the technology available, but there's also, to say, the training of staff. What's the situation like in lower and middle income countries in that regard? When technology is being made, it's really critical to have the end user in mind and to have the end user be part of the process of making the technology. A nurse who is you know, really busy in a clinic who has 30 patients, if you want her to use technology, it has to be really simple. The adoption of the technology has to be thought about. And this is work that, you know, in the field, we call this implementation science, where you can't just make technology in New York or Geneva and, you know, dump it or put it in a long way and expect it to be used. Like we have to keep in mind what is the local context, you know, what's the access to charging of, you know, a cell phone. You, know, you can't always have technology that relies on a robust internet connection. So offline platforms are really important or that only intermittently need access to the internet. So while anybody is making technology to use in Loriso setting, both involving folks from that area and really keeping kind of the context in, in mind is critical and, you know, continuous training to make sure that, for example, if the nurse who was trained is moved to another location, the next person in is able to uptake that technology and is trained on how to use it. It's interesting because it seems here that what we're really talking about is also looking at a country's needs and resources and sort of matching them, I suppose. And we've 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 touched upon this in previous UIC podcasts is, is the need for a national cancer control plan. I believe Kenya has is working on one or is developing one. Also know Rwanda's often cited as an example, particularly in the case of cervical cancer. Can you tell us more about how that can work in a in a low income setting and, and how we could replicate perhaps some of the successes that are going on in sub Saharan Africa? So having a national cancer control plan is critical because it's a roadmap that guides policies, guides where do we put grant funding or what, you know, define the gaps and how do we move towards cancer control. So certainly there's several African countries, actually, you know, more than several who have really excellent policies, including Kenya and Rwanda. The government of Rwanda or the leadership in Rwanda has really pushed cancer control and cervical cancer at the forefront. So Rwanda is one of the African countries that has met the target of vaccinating 90% of girls in that 11 to 15 age group. And that's because they have significant political will, use of um, the cancer control as kind of a roadmap and really setting targets and making sure we're reaching them. A key thing, I think, for a lot of countries is sometimes it's easy to write a really beautiful cancer control plan, but how are we making sure that we're implementing it? And we've talked about inequalities both between low and high income countries, but even within countries, there's significant inequality where you have um, women in an urban setting have excellent access to care because there's a significant number of specialists in that urban setting. But in rural areas, they do not because specialists are not in the rural areas. So how do we 
fight the market forces that keep specialists in urban areas to make sure that even while we have an excellent cancer control plan in the books, that really we're taking steps to implement it and making sure that women everywhere are accessing the services. That's a very important uh, point to make, how, how a national cancer control plan needs to ensure that it's addressing the needs of all populations, regardless of geographical location, gender, socioeconomic level and income level. And uh, you mentioned inequities within countries, and I think we touched upon earlier some of the the issues for rural populations. These exist probably in in almost every country. What are some of the inequities you see within the United States, for instance, within a high-income country? The picture is nuanced. You know, while in the United States there's high rates of HPV vaccination, there's very high coverage of screening, but the women who get cervical cancer, there's significant disparity within the United States and unfortunately, it mirrors the structural you know, inequities in this country where women who live in rural areas, women who are poor, um, women who are marginalized by different identities, including race, socioeconomic status, tend to live in places that don't have access to a gynecologist, for example. So, you know, while the United States is one of the richest countries in the world, there are certain counties or states where you, they, there are no specialists. And so those women, similar to women in sub- rural sub-Saharan Africa, have to go really far to get these services. And we know that the longer a person needs to go, especially when for preventive service, when they're not sick, it's harder for them to get there. In regards to socioeconomics, you know, when, when a woman or a person needs to take three buses within the context of the United States, to get to a clinic that's only open a certain number of days of the week, then they oftentimes don't get there. Or, you know, when they get a health service and they feel like they're not listened to, this is a big problem um, for marginalized populations where they feel like their services are not responsive to their needs. So certainly inequalities exist even in high income countries. You know, I've heard there's some programs that have been developed to help address some of these, for instance, accommodations near health centers for people who have to travel long distances so they can continue their treatment or even perhaps transportation assistance. How easily can these be put in place and how long term, how sustainable are they? You know, we call these waiting homes in a sense where a woman needs five cycles of chemotherapy and the chemotherapy center is 300 miles from where they live and it's in a city. So kind of philanthropy, et cetera, build homes or provide accommodation next to the hospital where the patients can be there during the treatment. These are really critical. And, you know, oftentimes they're not that expensive an investment, but they literally can you know, mean the difference between life and death because it's not uncommon. And it's actually very sad that in Kenya, for example, women have to go to the capital city to get radiation therapy if they need it. And the capital city is too expensive for a rural woman to get accommodation. So you actually have patients who literally sleep on the floors overnight as they wait for their radiation because they have nowhere to sleep. Completely unacceptable in today's world. And you know we can find ways to mitigate those gaps. I actively work in Kenya and Malawi where the difference for saving a woman's life can can be $30, you know, between getting her from home to getting her to the tertiary center where she can get the life-saving surgery that would literally save her life. But she doesn't have that $30, so she waits a whole year where she's saving to get that money. But in a year's time, her cancer is not curable. 
as a society, we can find that $30 to get her to get that life-saving surgery. And I think that's the same way we have to think about these kind of waiting homes that can bridge the gap to get people to curative care, where then they can be productive members of society for the rest of their lives. There's very good data that shows that when you lose a woman from cervical cancer or for any cancer, and men, but women in this case, there's ripple effects in society, both for their children. So their children are less likely to finish schools. Their girl child is more likely to get married. So a whole generation is affected, which is why, you know, while we think about cost effectiveness of some of these programs that need injection of money, for governments, we can make the case that it actually is worth it for you to spend that 30 or $50 to bridge that gap and make sure this person and this woman gets this curative care. Because then, from a society perspective, you benefit significantly from the fact that she gets to live the rest of her life. Yeah, that's a very important point to make, the cost effectiveness of investing in, in cancer care. It's obviously a very complex uh, problem in terms of, of improving access to services, but I think you've shown, you know, especially where there's political will, um, we have the means, there are the means uh, and the ability to, to certainly improve the situation. And, and it seems like in certain, at least in quite a few areas, things are moving, I believe, in the, the right direction. Well, thank you very much for explaining all of this to us today and uh, hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening. If you're interested in this topic, the topic of cervical cancer or more generally of screening, prevention and treatment or of inequity, don't hesitate to join us at the World Cancer Congress the 18th to 20th of October in Geneva. And if you like this podcast, please do give us a rating or follow UICC on social media and stay tuned for more editions of Let's Talk Cancer.